This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 14th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. What's a bootlegger without a Baptist when it comes to public policy? He's little more than a naked aggressor against the public interest. But when the two agree, they can be a powerful coalition to shroud self-interest in the cloak of public good. Adam Smith is co-author of Bootleggers and Baptists, How Economic Forces and Moral Persuasion Interact to Shape Regulatory Politics. He spoke at the Cato Institute in October. We went back, um, appropriately enough, to uh, another Adam Smith you may be more familiar with, um, who talked about uh, not just economics and the wealth of nations, but about um, moral sentiments in his Theory of Moral Sentiments book. And one of the things Adam Smith talked about in that book is how much um, we have sort of deeply embedded, um, he didn't use the phrase genetic coding, but it is, a genetic coding of other regarding, right? Our relationships to one another um, provide powerful incentives in how we cooperate, how we respond, how we appreciate and approve of certain things and disapprove of other things, how we're willing to take cost on ourselves to punish people um, because we just don't like it. Uh, Of course, after Adam Smith, we have evolutionary theory and experimental evidence that shows the same thing. One of the great insights from experimental economics is um, how bad economists are at predicting actual human behavior uh, in a lot of instances. Uh, People behave not, uh, they do not behave uh, in a strict rational choice manner all the time. One of the things we do is we tend to cooperate a bit more than um, than the rational choice framework predicts. Uh, And we're also, as I said, we're willing to bear a cost to punish people in a way the rational choice framework doesn't predict. All right, so what is all this evidence leaning to? Well, it's leaning to the fact that, again, we have a deeply embedded public spiritedness that the Baptist is kind of poking at. There's a Baptist element in all of us, in other words, that, for better or worse, we can't get rid of and shows up in politics, in the political arena, like anywhere else. Okay. Okay. but how? Well, here's where the problems start. So we have this other regarding instinct. It works very well in our private lives. It's how we get along with one another. It's why at least most of us are not jerks all the time, right? Um, but um, in the public arena, it gets a little misinformed. It gets a little distorted as it goes through um, different institutions and so forth. So one of the ways of bringing this out is using one of my former professor's ideas, Brian Kaplan's, of rational rationality. So people you know, are fairly rational in their private lives, but as he would argue, fairly um, dumb in their public lives. Um, we're easily led um, down rabbit holes and in support of things that are actually not against our interests. Now, the earlier theory of rational ignorance says, look, who has time for politics, right? I mean, obviously, you all have time for politics, and that's that's great. Um, But we have to admit this is is probably a room of fairly unusual people um, relative to to the average person even walking around the United States. So most people are going to be fairly ignorant and are going to be sort of led, um, I won't make the joke as if by an invisible hand, but as by some hand um, towards the Baptist. But what the Baptist wants, again, is not necessarily really in the public interest because, of course, the bootlegger is there uh, to guide things in the other direction, all right? So Baptists provide a cloak to bootlegger activity uh, and one that, in a lot of cases, if not most cases, makes the public worse off. Okay, and then finally, 
It also shows what happens when you don't have that Baptist. If you don't have the cloak, if you don't have any kind of tapping on our heartstrings or pulling on our heartstrings there, um, the bootlegger is going to be short an argument in the public arena. Okay, so let's actually um, let's look at that with some of the new episodes we look at. So um, one of the things we, we examine actually in that chapter is Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street in a way could be called uh, a Baptist without a bootlegger. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different things that bootleggers and Baptists have been targeted at, environmental, uh, environmentalism, tobacco, alcohol, etc. But we wanted to take on some of the new things. So Occupy Wall Street is so interesting in that there were a coalition of forces that wanted to do something for the public. And I believe that's kind of why uh, the group became so powerful so quickly, um, at least in the public spectacle and the media and so forth. Um, but it didn't really go anywhere. And one of the reasons is there really wasn't a coordinator. Okay, There were, don't get me wrong, there were people behind Occupy Wall Street. Obviously, there were a lot of people writing publicly and trying to coordinate it. Uh, but we have to agree, I think, that um, it did not become as powerful as that body wanted it to. And I would argue, again, because there was probably not sort of the bootlegger or some sort of interest coordinating that public affection uh, into a particular channel. Um, another new episode is marijuana legalization. This is, um, I, I obviously teach at uh, a college, so this is, this is one that appeals to my students. Um, so one of the things that's so interesting about marijuana legalization is who is the bootlegger? Um, medicinal marijuana is the bootlegger. And if you look these things up, you will find that medicinal marijuana um, producers heavily, heavily, heavily lobby against uh, marijuana legalization. Right, so it almost seemed like too good to be true when we found that example, but it's true. Um, and so you ironically have things like school teachers and um, and uh, minority groups representing pro legalization, uh, and then medicinal marijuana actually uh, being anti. So again, very strange developments over that particular issue. Um, what we say in the book, because this is obviously ongoing, is that um, the bootlegger Baptist coalition has only been semi-effective because the Baptists are kind of cut down the middle on that issue. Um, and so you've seen success uh, in legaliz legalizing it in some fronts, not so much in others. The Troubled Assets Relief Program, this is something that we've actually uh, done some work in uh, public choice for, um, and we expand on that in the book. So. TARP is, is many things, and I, I imagine it's been, it's been spoken of in this forum and in other groups that you've seen uh, time and time again. So um, I'm not going to bore you with, like, you know, an over, overview of the, of the bailout, um, but just point to what our kind of niche is in describing it, and that is TARP is bootleggers without Baptists, okay, bootleggers without Baptists. So regardless of what you consider TARP was originally for, it eventually evolved, especially with sort of the second wave of bailouts, into a rent-seeking mechanism for smaller banks. You had a lot of banks um, that did not necessarily need the credit uh, getting access to it anyway. Some could argue because they were pushed by, um, um, by the Fed. Others could argue that, again, it was, it was rent-seeking versus rent-extraction. But regardless, the mechanism changed from what it was originally intended to be. But it didn't last. It didn't last. TARP is no longer with us. Um, you know, AI, even AIG's paid back the money, right? Everyone's kind of abandoned that mechanism. But why? I mean, we can say, well, because it ended, because it was supposed to, 
But, you know, you can, you can say that about a lot of things, a lot of organizations that were supposed to wind down and don't. So why did this one uh, wind down so quickly? Again, we argue it did not have Baptist appeal. The most we could find for people who were appealing for TARP to continue and so forth were unions. And in this day and age, unions just do not exercise um, the kind of moral sentiment um, that they did in the past. So again, a very interesting um, sort of counterexample of what happens when you don't have a bootlegger and Baptist coalition. Okay, finally, we talk about the Affordable Care Act uh, or Obamacare. Um, and as I said, this is something of a new order of uh, bootleggers and Baptists where you have coordination from a central organization. In this case, the Obama administration uh, and human health, uh, specifically human health services. Um, we are going to see, I think, in the next 10 years, um, a radical change in how healthcare is provided in a way that's going to be hidden to most people. Um, and those of you who are familiar with this, with this area, we now have uh, more networks in terms of providers, uh, sort of more network interest. And what is defining these networks or who should be in this network and so forth is human and health services, or at least a lot more guidance than that group has performed to, um, to, these, uh, to these networks in the past. And so we're implementing, we're seeing again a new stage of implementing a coordinated interest across bootleggers, being, of course, insurance groups, big pharma, um, hospitals, and then Baptists, all these people who are wanting health care reform and so forth. So this has become um, uh, somewhat, of a car somewhat more of a cartelized industry because of this development. Adam Smith is co-author of Bootleggers and Baptists, How Economic Forces and Moral Persuasion Interact to Shape Regulatory Politics. You can get your copy at Cato.org.